Welcome to the Nat and Sarah Show, where we aim to touch, move, and inspire you every single week. Really? We're really going to introduce our own show? Maybe we should leave it to the pro. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. One second, ladies. Here we go. Sarah Maxwell and Natalie Cook are experts in visualization and deliberate use of the law of attraction. As dynamic world athletes representing Canada and Australia in beach volleyball, they honed in on achievement at the highest level. Winning an Olympic gold medal on her home beach of Bondi is a pinnacle example. Their powerful techniques transmute the spiritual to the tangible, allowing thousands of their community members to bring their vision boards to life. Recently, they've taken their expertise on the road as the full-time family, where they inspire, coach, and lead people to create their unique, deliberate family life using a simplified three-step process. Welcome to the Nat and Sarah Show. Join us for twice-weekly episodes. Each week, Nat and Sarah will teach us how to deliberately create results in all areas of life using their unique three-step process. Not only that, they'll also sit down with some of their favorite high achievers who have manifested what most merely dream about. Are you a member of the community? Go to bit.ly slash the Nat and Sarah show to download your three-step journal to follow along with each workshop style teaching episode and get ready to take action on your inspirations. Today, we continue the conversation with a woman who has looked death in the face and come back to live more of life. As the network performance manager for LJ Hooker, she thought that being a leader in the Australian real estate industry was her biggest challenge. And then she broke up with her partner of five years to ensure she lived her dream of having a child. She found a donor, did IVF all on her own, and now experiences life through the lens of her four-year-old son, Nick. Growing up myopic and classified as doubly blind, having a rare blood disease without knowing it, and recently having a big section of bowel removed when it perforated, Amy Sanderson has discovered that life has two categories, what you can change and what you can't. This, like, I really am curious, what led this woman to here? What gives her the courage and stamina to have her dream baby on her own while being a high-level businesswoman? Her story speaks to this one life we all have and not wasting any time in the living of our dreams. So Amy, thank you for taking the time out, your full-on work day with your stilettos on to share <laughs> your life with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh my gosh. You ready to dive in? Cause like, I just want to ask you a big question straight away. You cool with it? Yeah, go for it. Okay. I think you're, you strike me as that kind of woman. So I want to drive, dive right into the eye of the needle and ask you to share, and you've already shared it with me a little bit, but the harrowing experience in 2012 on a flight to London. Like, I feel like this is the beginning of transecting your life into two parts, the before the flight and the after. So I might just break it down a little. So what were you flying to London for exactly? I was going to London um, for a holiday with my partner. Um, he's English, so we're going to see his family over there. Um, so it was good times. <laughs> well, or so you thought. Or were you, you were actually heading to London or heading back yeah. from? No, heading to. 
Yeah, got it. So good times were expected. Can you think about your state of mind when you walked on that flight? And I mean, you didn't yet know that you were going to be recounting this this many years later, but were you thinking about work? Were you thinking about your relationship? Like what was happening in your life at the time as you stepped onto that flight? Well, I travel a lot for work. Um, and so whenever I have a, a personal trip coming up, I don't usually think about it until I'm actually walking onto the flight because there's normally um, a number of other flights I have to do work-wise before I get to the personal trip. So I find that I don't actually think about a holiday until I'm sitting in the aeroplane seat. And that's when I go, oh, I can get excited now. So, you know, up the, the thoughts pre-flight were just very focused and very task-orientated. So it's just like, I've got the checklist, I've got to do this, this and this. <laughs> very pragmatic. This is what needs to happen before we get on. Nope, not excited yet. Do, 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 do. Bang, on the seat. Yay. So... Yeah. Got it. You know, it, 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 was, I don't, it wasn't concern, it wasn't, I wasn't sick, I wasn't stressed out, none of that. It was all just stock standard. Perfect. Because I want people to get this sense on purpose that it's not like there's a big lead in to a big event in your life. Only later do we start to analyze it that little bit more. But okay, describe what you remember happening during that flight and then maybe what you were told happened. So we did a, a stopover in Hong Kong. Um, I didn't eat anything at the airport. Literally, we, we waited uh, and then got back on the plane. And I remember having a little first world dummy spit because my TV wouldn't work. And the flight was packed and they couldn't move me to another seat. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. I've got to go from Hong Kong all the way to London with no TV. And back then we didn't have visuals on our devices or anything like that. You relied on the airline. Mm. Um, so I remember throwing many toys out. Um, and as part of my entertainment, I got up to go to the bathroom. And anyway, when I got to the bathroom, I realized that I wasn't going to get back to my seat. I suddenly felt, you know, when you're a child and you have um, a stomach bug and you get the sweats, you have the vomits, you have diarrhea, and you feel like you are going to die. In fact, death is a really good option. I felt like that. and Like then, all of a sudden? Like you didn't yeah, feel that walking to the bathroom? It, no, it was like a, a switch. It was so sudden it wasn't funny. And in all of that, I then had the added sensation of my head spinning. I was like, I'm going to actually pass out. I'm, I, I'm, I'm gonna, and, and I never got that as a kid when I got sick. So this was an added element to, to that drama. <clears throat> and I remember saying to one of the ladies that was sitting near the bathrooms, I said, my partner's in, and I told her where he was sitting, can you get him, please? And then I just remember hitting the deck. Um, and I don't remember anything beyond that um, until I woke up a few days later. In a different country? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay, so we'll talk. Was it Russia that you? That yes, you it was. It was, but I didn't know that at the time. Got it. So hold that. So what did you hear happened on that flight after you hit the deck? So I heard that my my partner um, was an offshore sailor. So he has got all the you do all the medical things to be able to save yourself if you're offshore and can't get to a hospital. So he came racing over and just went straight into CPR mode. 
So he said that I was starting to go blue. He said, your heart wasn't going, you weren't breathing. Um, he just went into resus mode. Then the, um, the airline staff came over and they started to help him. Um, so they were doing compressions and all that sort of stuff. Um, then, and I don't know the order that any of this happened, but I was told that they had defibrillators out. They were doing the adrenaline shots. Um, apparently you stop resus. I don't know if it's after 15 minutes or after 30 minutes, but if the person's not back, apparently you don't keep going. Well, the crew was so amazing that they just kept taking it in turns and they oh. kept going. And then they suddenly realized that I wasn't going to make it all the way to London. Um, so they made a decision to see if they could divert the plane. And the closest diversion was St. Petersburg, Russia. Now, the Russians have not allowed an emergency landing for over 10 years at this point. Um, they said yes. Um, wow. So then the plane had to ditch a whole heap of fuel so it could land. Landed in the snow. Now, the pilot wasn't used to landing in the snow. Wow. Um, this is two and a half hours. Now... I, I don't know the ins and outs of what was happening, but I know that um, they had an ambulance ready for me when we landed. I do recall waking up to see, well, I don't know if I woke up because I'm going to say I saw myself go into the aeroplane. So I don't know, oh, sorry, into the ambulance. So I don't actually oh. know what that, I, I haven't really thought about that till just now. Um, yeah, right. So that happened i know it was snowing outside um because okay, it was wow. darn cold and then i don't remember anything and i can't you know the stories get a bit distorted because dave was then separated from me because when you go to russia you need to have a visa it was an emergency landing so we had no visas so they took me straight to the hospital because as an inpatient you're okay but the authorities then heard what were happening and they started looking for Dave because they wanted to deport him back to the UK. So I was told that my doctor um, grabbed him, put him in a car with a driver and drove him out to the country <laughs> so they could sort his visa out. And when they sorted his visa out, then they'd bring him back to the city hospital with me. When you're telling this, like, I don't know why, but I'm feeling emotional. Do you, what, do you feel anything or is it like a story about somebody else? It's a story about someone else. When you're going through it, you're just yeah. going through it. Okay. You don't, you know, you, you don't really think beyond the, or I don't think beyond what's happening in the moment. Um, whereas Dave, on the other hand, yeah. he, you know, and when you're the observer, and this is what I say when I see friends that have got sick partners and all the rest of it, I feel for the partner. I feel for the people watching because they're helpless. They've got I their health. They've got all their marbles together. They've got everything happening, but they cannot help this situation. Whereas when you're going through it, you're just going through it. Okay. You're in the moment. You're just doing it. Yeah. And I think adrenaline helps you through. So that it's really interesting what you just said um, about in some ways seeing yourself getting in that ambulance, like you're mm -hmm. watching your body. Um, and I was told that during a, a major, when I had an emergency cesarean, I was watching myself being wheeled. And the way that I coped with it was to dissociate. Yeah. Like, cause it was, I guess the trauma, I don't know. I, 
and basically that perhaps is what you were experiencing by and feeling that the might, snow. And, and that, you know, that word disassoci disassociation is, I, uh, that, that I think explains it all because I disassociate myself from anything horrendous that's happening to work my way through it. Got it. Got it. I think that's quite common. I think it's the most amazing coping mechanism we have as humans to handle things that are too big. How, well, this is my experience. I had to go back two years later and relive it like in my body because I started to have really, this is really strange. I didn't expect to talk about this, but basically I started to get this massive skin rash, like red face. And I had it for like nine months. Wow. They thought everyone, like it looked like I had rosacea all of a sudden and all this kind of, I thought it was my skin creams and you do all the topical stuff. And in the end, I did one kind of reliving it session experience and it never came back. Wow. Trippy. Our bodies are intricate beings. Yeah. Now, we could go down that route, but we weren't <laughs> planning. We weren't planning to go there. So what I was more curious about was, when you awoke in your hotel room in Russia, let's go for this. Cause you said you didn't even realize that's where you were. When did you realize that you were not at home in Australia? Well, I, um, I awoke on a hospital trolley. Um, now, you know, you see in the movies where someone is handcuffed to a bed Yes. And when they're about to put them in the nut house and they start freaking out. So anyway, I woke up, I had no clothes on. My, I don't fly, when I do long haul flights, I don't fly with my contacts in. So I didn't have my glasses in. So I can't see my hand. So I had no glasses, no clothes, and I was handcuffed to a trolley. And then I realized I was in a hospital theater because I could see the huge big light above the bed and then I realized there were all these men talking over me. And then suddenly it's not English. And I was like, this isn't London, is it? And then I pieced together just from them talking that it was Russia. And they had a scalpel in their hand. Now, then they started to cut. And I'm like, oh, my God, I can actually feel that. Can you stop? Um, so they were, they thought I had some infectious disease and they wanted to drain it out of my stomach, but they started to do the incision while I was still awake. What, so they, in Russia they don't put you under? Is this? Well, they were supposed to, but it hadn't worked. So I don't know how that works, but I'm like, whoa, 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 don't. And, and I, you know, again, I, I then started to visualize because I was like, I want to run off this bed, but where do I run? Because this guy's got a knife in his hand. But I'm, I'm just, like, I've got handcuffs. I can't run anywhere. I've also got no clothes on and I can't see. Um, okay. Wow. And if I start thrashing, that's when they go and jab you with a needle to calm you down. And that's when I end up in a nut house in some foreign country where no one knows where I am because I'm on my own at this point. So I was just like, just breathe, just go with it. <laughs> but I can feel that. <laughs> so let's wow. not just get so I would say that's helplessness to the nth degree. And, you know, your mantra of the things that you can change and what you can't. Yes. Um, was coming, clarifying itself very quickly there. So once you started to heal a little bit, you're, you're still in Russia, you're on the bed. Do you, do you think on some level you woke up a different person? Um, it's not like that. No, no, not no. at all. 
not at all. You, but I, I will say I've got a very um, I don't I don't worry about things so much. Like I don't I don't sweat the small stuff because it's like you know what there's actually big important stuff going on out there. So don't get choose your battles. Don't get your knickers in a twist out of that over that. That's you know in reality like come on. Um, and so did my, you used to? Did you used to sweat the small stuff? Potentially, yeah. You know, I always have to get my own way. It doesn't matter what it was. Whereas now it's like, you know what, you can have that. You win. You win. Good work. Yay. Um, because it's like I'm not, I'm not going to worry about that. Um, I do find that my tolerance is a little bit less because, and I often have to bite my tongue a lot. Uh, a sentence that often wants to come out of my mouth is, seriously, get a real problem. When I hear people carrying on like a pork chop, um, now, I haven't actually said that to anyone. It's my internal talk. I have that conversation with myself and I let it go. Um, I just, just wait, all you North Americans, are you just loving the Aussie-isms coming out of this? Like pork chop and dummy spit, or you said something about throwing your toys out of the crap. You said a form of that and I thought, oh, I can't wait for like my Canadians to work that out. So keep going, loving it. <laughs> colloquial it's beautiful but okay hold on a sec so so i got it so these inside thoughts are kind of like you know wait till you wake up on a bed in russia with no clothes on not being able to see a handcuffed to a chair and then they'll i'll tell you about problems so how did we talked about your partner you and your partner had different reactions to this event in some ways yeah the way you responded so contrast it, it was those we were separated for three days. So I was in um, an infectious diseases clinic and he had been taken by the driver as soon as he got off the aeroplane from the doctor's driver and was taken out to a clinic out in the country. Now, what happened to him while they were trying to sort his visa out? They took him down this clinic. They locked him in the room, told him to um, hide under the bed with his passport in his pants and don't open the door for anyone. <laughs> Okay. So that was happening to him while they were trying to sort the visa out. So he he was because he didn't know where I was, he didn't know what was happening. The last he saw of me, I was unconscious being wheeled away into the back of an ambulance. That was his last visual of me. Um so that was traumatic for him and I guess he had a lot of time on his hands to think about what that was or what what he didn't know um so that was really traumatic on on him um, and then what would what was his reaction because i know that you told me you made some clear decisions after that event maybe not directly after but about life and yeah. the things that mattered to you and i know that he kind of had a different way like you were sort of sounds to me like your courage level went up your I've got to do this level went up and him, he was a bit different. Yeah. Um, I, I, I definitely reacted in, Hey, you know what? Life's short. Let's just go grab it and do it. Whereas he just wanted to wrap me in cotton wool so that nothing happened ever again. Right. <laughs> um, and, and that, you know, the, that meant that our paths did not continue in the same direction because I didn't want to be wrapped in cotton wool. In fact, I got really angry. You know, my, my first day it. back at work was jumping on a flight to go up to the Gold Coast. So it's about an hour and a half flight. Whereas he was like, your first day at work should be sitting in the office nice and quiet. And <laughs> yeah, because he wanted to protect you from 
ever. And like, thank you for identifying the fact that the person watching, observing, they have a totally different experience. Like there's a helplessness that's even more different than being in the moment. And I think, um, you know, the fact that you, you identified that, Hey, I'm going on one path and he's going on another. Now, what would you say your relationship to death was like before? Did you ever think about dying? Did you, yeah, had you ever thought about I'm, that before? I'm, I'm not a particularly deep thinker, so no, never, never even crossed my mind. And in fact, it doesn't really now. And, and okay. when I say it doesn't really, I'm sort of a bit, so what? Um, when I was a lot younger, my best friend um, was killed on a motorbike. And so my whole relationship with death is, well, at least I get to go and see him. And I don't have to be an old duck when I see him because he's going to be 24. I'm already 43, so I'm already going to be old. (laughs) Um, So it doesn't matter if it happens now. But you know what? It's also cool if it happens later. Got it. And yet I know you had this dream of having a son. And so even though you you don't, you know, wake up in the morning and fear death or love death, it's that there was something compelling you in a whole new way after this. So tell me a little bit about Nick and how he came to be created. Well, you know, I sort of, I spent six weeks in the hospital with this particular um, ordeal. So that gives you a bit of thinking time. And it's kind of like, you know what, what do I, what do I want to do? Like what, what, what's real here? And, you know, when you're in a relationship, you sort of have some pretty, okay, well, I had some pretty traditional ideas of where I saw things going in terms of you get married, you buy a house, you have kids, like you tick some of those boxes. Okay, maybe not all of those boxes get ticked, but at least two, one or two at least. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was nothing happening in that regard. And it was kind of like, well, you know what? I'm approaching my mid-30s. I actually need to um, accept that it's not going to happen with this man or I just pull a pin and I just go and make it happen myself. So um, that's exactly what I did. And I sat down with him and I said, you know, and I didn't want to be this woman that says, you know, I want to have a baby. There's your ultimatum. We've got to do this, this, and this. And if you don't, I'm leaving. I just said to him, you know, if you want to do these things, I will say yes. So don't be afraid to ask me because if you ask me, no, I'm going to say yes. And anyway, he never asked any of, any of it. Um, and so I, I set a little deadline, a two-year deadline. I figured that was really generous um, and nothing. So on the date that, you know, suddenly turned up and nothing had happened, I just left. And so did you instantly start the process of looking for a donor <laughs> The IVF, yep. you just... I, did, I, didn't, I didn't know that I was going to go and find a donor. I went to the IVF clinic to freeze eggs. Okay. And I think I was 36 at this time. And the doctor basically said to me, have you heard of freeze-dried meat? I said, yeah. And he said, okay, that's your eggs. And I went, oh, okay. So he said, if you're going to do this, I don't recommend freezing your eggs. You either do it or you don't. And I went, wow, okay, that's full on. So I said, leave, I've never leave, heard leave, that before. <laughs> leave, leave it with me. I have to think about this for a minute. Um, so I went away. Um, I, I went on a trip for six weeks. 
Um, I did a, you know, I absolutely threw myself into work, just went absolutely hell for leather, did loads and loads of everything that you can't do when you have a kid. I was like, let's just roll this. And then it got to the end of the year. So this was in January and it got to, um, I think, November. And I came back to him and I said, all right, let's do it. Let's put me on that list for a donor. I'm, I am going to do this. And anyway, they put me on the list. I got talking to the ladies at the clinic. Um, I went up the list really quickly because they tell you you could wait six months. Well, within oh, about yeah. three weeks, okay. I was up the top of the list. Um, and it's not like you sit down, have a wine, and you flip through a book and you've got all these choices. As a solo parent, you don't have that many choices because the donors can specify I want a heterosexual couple, I want a gay couple, and everything is couple, couple, couple. Very few are actually okay with a solo parent. Um, wow. And then my dream man, I shouldn't say dream man, my dream donor <laughs> appeared. And the ladies at the clinic had said to me, if you see something that you like, don't hesitate. Now, bearing in mind, a lot of the donors I'd seen were 18-year-old uni students. Now, I sort of look at that and it's like, they're not, they're not getting paid to do it in Australia. In Australia, um, the, the donors do it for, you know, altru altruistic reasons, not for payment. Um, so it's not like it's a uni kid going to earn some money. Um, but I still thought as a uni kid, like at 18, I didn't know what I was doing. So to suddenly find out 18 years later when the laws allow the child to come and find you, I was like, oh, I don't know, I don't know. So the donor I found, he was 47, so he was 10 years older than me. Um, he was married, he had a child. And then comes the really cool bit. When you are having a baby, not because you're in love with someone, you can be as materialistic as you want. So I suddenly went lock and load this one. He is 6'3", six, six, he is Italian, he's got dark hair, blue eyes. He, I don't know what his job is, but he studied law. Um, he works in the courts. Oh my God, that's mine. Um, so yeah, and that was how, I'm, how, how that came about. And I was really fortunate that my IVF um, it, it happened first time. I tried for twins. Twins didn't work. Um, I just thought if you're going to do it, just do it. Um, but yeah, so I got, got my one baby. Whereas I've witnessed a lot of my girlfriends going through round after round after round wow. and really challenging. So I'm also glad I didn't wait the extra couple of years hoping that I would meet someone. Sure. Um, because I think that really had an, you know, the, the older you get, your fertility really drops off. Hmm. And do you, um, Nick's four, is that right? Yeah, four, yep. Have, have you talked to him about it at all yet? What's the, yeah, or, like in little, an age appropriate little, way? Yeah, we, we have little chats, you know, and he sets me up. If he, if he had a father, I would be convinced that that male was um, feeding him questions to ask me, but I can't oh, yeah. use any of it because he will ask me, so how do babies get in tummies? Do you eat them? And then I'll give him a little age-appropriate explanation. Then he will laugh. Um, he laughs hysterically when I tell him he doesn't need to know how babies come out. Um, and it's like, do you know something, child? <laughs> but, you so know, interesting. 
we've had a little bit of a chat about the fact, you know, you don't get a dad, but I tell you what, your mum makes up for both. <laughs> Good one. I like that. It's great. Yeah. Okay. Have so have I'm just asking because our daughter has two mums, and so um, it's only in the last six months that people have asked her. Yep. And they, you know, someone asked her, "Do you have a dad?" And I thought, "Oh, what's she gonna say?" And she said, "Yeah." And I was like, "What?" And then she said, "Granddad," with that kind of attitude. And oh, I thought, I love yeah. So, so aren't they clever? They're just so yeah, cool. Very. Nick also, and this is, you know, kids, right? We'll be walking down the street and he'll walk up to a man. He'll say, hey, mum, is this my dad? And oh, I'll say, wow. no. And he'll say, can it be? Like, <laughs> I don't even know this guy. <laughs> he might be your dating, um, your mojo. Oh, he is. Totally. Totally. <laughs> okay. So I'm so... Amazing. This is beautiful, by the way. Thank you for sharing so openly um, what you your experience. And I know you told me a little bit about your background. So, you know, growing up, I was going to call you little independent Amy, but now I'm going to call you the make it happen independent little Amy. Would you say that your dreams that you had for your life back then, because I know you had a specific one, would you yeah. say that life has turned out how you thought it would or there been is it different so it, it's interesting and i i refer back to this statement um at work all the time um when i'm coaching um our, our offices and and our teams on things mm -hmm. is what is the outcome you want the journey on how to get there may change mm. and that's okay but let's focus on the outcome and how you get there is irrelevant because there could be half a dozen different ways that you get there. And each way that doesn't work is just another way that you can tick off and say, try that, now try something else. And I very much think that's what's happened in my life. I, it hasn't gone by design, but I think, you know what, when I get to the end of it, I would have got to where I needed to be. And that's fine. Beautiful. But you did say um, you knew clearly early on that you didn't want to go to uni like a lot of people you knew. <laughs> What was your dream? You, you had that pretty clear. Yeah, I, I was in primary school and I wanted to be a real estate agent. I went to an auction and I remember saying to my dad, ooh, who's that? And he said, oh, that's an auctioneer. And I said, tell me more. And what appealed to me was, and this is really, you know, people will say that they love real estate because they love houses, they love people, all of this. Okay. I loved real estate from a really young age because I wanted to be up in front of everyone in a beautiful outfit driving a nice car. And they do that do that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Winning. <laughs> oh. that, that was what the 11-year-old, um, the 11-year-old mindset. <laughs> do you know, it's, it's great that you're saying this because with kids, you want to actually ask them what about it excites you because I know my partner Nat saw a game of footy with her dad and saw the person running with the water bottles out to the field to the players and she thought that looked pretty great and when she asked her dad what is that who's that and he said it's a physio which I don't think it was which is even funnier so she became a physio and then when she started doing physio she's like 
oh no, this is not it. I want to get physio. So then she became a professional athlete and got lots of physio. I love it. So, so it's good to ask kids like, what is it about this that you love? Is it just the stilettos? Cause we can arrange that. <laughs> um, but okay. So one thing I do want to talk about quickly is that your first boss fired you up a little. So you did become that real estate agent. You did realize yeah. that dream. Um, however, there were some hurdles. So what first boss, he had another idea for your dream. Yeah, remember? I mean, um, in property, in real estate terms, you typically, you, you know, as a girl, you know, and it's so ter- stereotypical, but just run with me. You know, you, you start on reception, answering the phones, you then move into property management, and then eventually they'll let you move into sales. And so I was on this little path. I'd moved from the front desk. I was in property management, and I called my boss, and I sat down, and I said, all right, so you know, I'm 20. I've got this little plan. I want to be doing this by this age, this by this age and this by this age. But, you know, as you're my boss, I need you to be involved in this plan because, well, you know, I need you to help me make it happen. So what training do I need to do? Oh, and, and I was the kid that from, you know, age 16, I was working my weekends, not getting paid so I could get work experience. Um, so I could be qualified for things when the time came. So I was like, what do I need to do in addition to tick these little things off? And I just remember he laughed and he said, you should be grateful that you're no longer on the front desk. And I was like, I beg your pardon? Did you seriously just say that to me? Mm. And um, yeah, I, did, I didn't react. And I'm, I'm very good at, I don't react to people. You need to respond. So I, I quite often in meetings, I will take a deep breath. And that, you know, if, if you know me, you can imagine what I'm saying in my head about you. Um, quite often the facial expressions give it away, but <laughs> it doesn't get verbalised, but you've got a pretty clear idea. Yes. Um, and I just said to him, give me two weeks. I'm going to take two weeks leave. Don't ring me. And I remember walking downstairs and I said to his business partner, you might need to go and have a chat to him and find out what he's just said to me, but I'm not coming back for two weeks. You, you've got to give me time to breathe on this. And that's when I went out and found another job with a company that I know is very progressive and made things happen. Um, and and wow. that was amazing. What did he spark in you? Um... There was an element of, I'm going to prove you wrong. Yeah. And there was also an element of, you can't tell me what to do. Got it. But was there also, got that, because I think that's huge fuel. And I also do think that when somebody says something that totally, totally doesn't align with where you see yourself being, there's like, you did it. It was like an utter rejection of what he would, basically he had a vision for you and that was reception and yep. you should be grateful for anything else. And you had another vision. And when those things don't match, great that you could breathe, but in a way it's like you needed to turn and move away from that. Cause it just didn't match. No, that's it. Just, that's it. And that's what I mean. And when I went to, um, cause I knew, I knew where I wanted to work and I rang them and I said, all right, so we need to meet because you need to employ me. And they're like, I beg your pardon. Who are you? <laughs> Um, but it was just like, wow. I knew exactly where I was going to be. And that was the company that when I was 16, I knew I wanted to work at that company. So that was my end goal anyway. Um, well, not my end goal, but that was at that time. 
very sure. much on list but he just gave me the push to do it because I was not going to do it for a couple of years I wanted to have a bit more experience and a bit more to offer before I went and did that approach and then it was kind of like well you know what I'm not going back to that office at all I now have to go and make this other thing happen now I have a, a good friend who said something that's totally appropriate to this that's oftentimes negative what we term as negative events push us toward the thing that we actually want to do even faster. Isn't that this what you just shared? Absolutely. So cool. And I've um, seen that in, in business with people where they get made redundant and it's just like at, at that moment, it's like the end of the world, but every single person I've seen made, been made redundant has gone and lifted to another level. Here, here. And I just want to acknowledge you because as a woman in a, a very competitive industry, what you've created is phenomenal but then to go and do that in your personal life to see life through the lens of your son because that's what you decided to do and like you said it, it had there's lots of different ways to get there but this is where you are um just before we we pressed the go button amy said to me um I hope this is interesting because I just live my life and I just want to acknowledge you for your humility, for just living your life and doing what you do. I don't, you know, I think it's kind of weird if people are doing their life so that they can then repeat it. You know, this is actually you just being you. So thank you for sharing so authentically, you know, what happened on that flight in 2012, what led you to here. And I can't wait to, you know, have another conversation in five years and see where you are next, where Nick has led you next, and we can compare notes with our kids because they're like the same age. So that's pretty cool. Amen. So thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Sarah. It's been fabulous. You're welcome. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Don't forget to join the community at bit.ly slash the Nat and Sarah show to download your three-step journal and participate in weekly lives found only in our private group. Hold on, hold on, hold on. You've got to rate and review the show. And I know all the podcasts are always asking this. And in the past, I wasn't doing it. And the reason I wasn't doing it is because I actually didn't know how to do it. So open your podcast player and click on our show from your library, not the listen now. That's where I was going wrong in the past. So now that you know how to do it, when you go there, make sure you give us a five-star review. Five stars, five stars, five stars. And then click on write a review link to actually write a review so that you can tell other people that we're legit and even funny, maybe a bit serious. So if you want to recommend this to someone, you have to put your fingers on the keys and send us a review. Thanks.